he's one thing that's perhaps missed sometimes when we study reformed history is the context of, more broadly speaking what was going on um, as some of these documents are being written um, you know mm, yeah. the Heidelberg catechisms coming out in a time of um, outbreaks of plague throughout Europe and uh, at least by the, between 1564 and 1566 it, it starts striking Heidelberg hmm. in some very strong ways it's shutting down the university um, people are looking to their own interests as it were yeah and when you realize that all of a sudden there's things here that we can learn Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign-up link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we're doing a book club episode. It's on the new book, Faith in the Time of Plague, edited by Steve Coleman and Todd Rester. Both of them are on our show today. going to be talking about that book, and it's published by Westminster Seminary Press. So before we jump in, as always, just a couple reminders about our show notes. So if you go to our show notes, you'll find a few links. Of course, one is to Westminster Seminary Press, where you can find out how to get a copy of this book for yourself. There's another couple links. Uh, One is for finding a local church finder near you. We would all agree the most important thing is to find a church to call home. So this church finder can locate the closest Reformed Church to your area, and so you can at least drop in for a visit and hopefully become a member. And there's another uh, link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters. That's a group of podcasts which we are a member of, and we are like-minded with other podcasts. And so if you enjoy our show, you enjoy our content, and you, and you want to get more of that stuff from maybe some other podcasts, you'll probably enjoy that link in those shows. So without further ado, we'll kind of jump right into the episode and let Peter further introduce Dr. Coleman and Dr. Rester. Yeah, we're excited to have both Dr. Coleman and Dr. Rester. They're both professors at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So Stephen Coleman, Dr. Stephen Coleman's professor of Old Testament and Biblical Language at Westminster Theological Seminary, also co-editor of the Westminster Theological Journal and senior research fellow at the J. Allen Grove Center for Advanced Biblical Research. And then Dr. Todd Rester is the associate professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary, also works on some translation uh, projects, which we'll talk about later on in this. But thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you both on our show. 
Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Nick. Yes, thanks. Glad to be here. Well, cool. If I mean, if I can kind of start it off. So what we, we talked a little bit pre-recording about this book. So what what got you interested? In it? It, may, it may be obvious to a lot of our audience. We're like, well, duh, we've been in the last 18 months in this stuff. But what 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 got you what got you interested? What what was the background behind behind editing, translating this book? Yeah, it um I think to use uh, Todd's language, uh, he said it sort of fell out of a faculty meeting, and I can uh, I can agree with that. Huh. It's it started as uh, back in uh, at the uh, in the spring of 2020 uh, when uh, COVID was uh, you know still in its early stages of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in a faculty meeting going around sharing uh, what projects we're working on. And Todd mentioned in that faculty meeting that there's a, a genre of literature called the Ars Moriendi, uh, the art of dying. Hmm. And that he was thinking of uh, translating a piece that had never been translated before and maybe publishing it in a journal. It was a somewhat offhand comment. And I uh, remember hearing that and, and thinking that that sounded fascinating. And maybe I'm not the only one who thinks that that sounds fascinating. Maybe this literature written by uh, Protestant reformers who are thinking deeply about such matters and living it in a way that we couldn't even imagine. Mm. Uh, Maybe they would have some wisdom that would speak into our current climate. Mm. And so I called, I called Todd, um, or maybe I stopped you in the hall. I can't remember. And uh, I was asking him about it. I said, Todd, uh, you know, you were so far he, away from each other. Yeah, I went downstairs <laughs> and uh, I said, Todd, you know, uh, you mentioned this this genre of literature, Ars Moriendi. Uh, how, how much of this literature is there? He said, how much do you want? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and from there, we, we got we got talking about what, you know, how. Uh, a volume like this might be of potential uh, use for pastors in their ministries, uh, church church members, and thinking through the the difficulties not just presented by by COVID, but uh, any trial, any illness. Uh, how do we think about them biblically? How do we walk by faith in the midst of such uh, trials? And, uh, and how can our forefathers in the faith help instruct us? What can we learn from them? Uh, from there, we uh, chatted with uh, Josh Curry, the manager of Westminster Seminary Press, and, uh, and started pulling p- uh, pieces that we thought would, uh, oh, would sort of fit the bill in terms of a compilation. Uh, you'll notice there's a variety of genres, a variety of authors, yep, yep. Uh, co- different uh, places, different locations, different uh, points in history uh, and uh, and offer therefore offering different perspectives on on the topic yeah one of the things that um, you, you might be a historian this is one way that I got into it you might <laughs> yeah. be a historian if a pandemic breaks out and your first reaction is I wonder what they thought about this in the past you know that's kind of the way that that's <laughs> yeah. kind of the way that historians and, and historical theologians are wired is what resources were used doctrinally, and exegetically to answer these sorts of questions. Because, you know, one of the things that is, I think, apparent, at least to me, in the in the last 18 to 20 months, is our society believes that this is totally new. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like this is this is the first time in history this has ever happened. Yeah. And if 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 Christians aren't aware of a similar point that they're in danger of, which is to think that their experience is totally new, mm-hmm. then then they don't know where to find help. They don't know where to find resources and they don't know where to find comfort. And so um, that was one of the things that I was interested in was, you know, surely given the amount, you know, the last plague in Europe was is roughly around 1715 to 1720 in France. Up until that time, the Black Death and other forms of the plague and pestilence ravaged throughout these communities. And you would um, frequently, by the time you get to the 16th, 17th century, it was not uncommon in one outbreak of the plague for a community or congregation to lose 25% of its membership. Hmm. And so you can imagine as a pastor, you know, if you, if within 10 years you had two outbreaks of the plague, you lose 25% in the first outbreak that lasts anywhere from six to 18 months. And then you lose another 25% five years later. So that the issue that's before them is death, dying, comfort, and what is your purpose and goal in life? Hmm. And so the the thing that's so striking to me in this is frequently, sometimes folks come to the Reformed faith and they they think of it in very cerebral terms about predestination or God's providence or something like this, or the problem of evil. And when you read someone like Beza, who's arguing very vehemently about the importance of of God's sovereignty, but also of secondary means like taking measure for your health, uh, then all of a sudden you realize how practical these conversations are. Hmm. Um, just to give you an example, we have a piece um, from Zacharias or Sinus that was penned in, originally in German in 15, uh, roughly 1564. Well, what was he doing in 1563? Yeah, the Heidelberg. He, in 1563, he's, he's writing the Heidelberg Catechism. Mm-hmm. So he's one thing that's perhaps missed sometimes when we study reformed history is the context of, of more broadly speaking, what was going on um, as some of these documents are being written. Um, you know, mm, yeah. the, the Heidelberg catechism is coming out in a time of um, outbreaks of plague throughout Europe. And at least by the, between 1564 and 1566, it, it starts striking Heidelberg. Hmm. in some very strong ways with shutting down the university. Um, people are looking to their own interests, as it were. Yeah. And when you realize that, all of a sudden, there's things here that we can learn. Um, hmm. COVID and plague are not the same. Hmm. Uh, plague was much more violent, much more deadly, hmm. and in some ways, much more infectious. Um and so one of the things to realize is that the, it was in this time frame that a lot of these confessions and doctrines were, were precised biblically and brought to bear congregationally. Hmm. Um, and and that, that should give us a sense of hope, too, that even in the midst of strong conflict, you have an opportunity for growth and for thriving and for um, clearly articulating the faith. So there's a mm. lot here uh, in this genre. There's a lot of things coming together at once. Not everybody in this book agrees with each other. Mm. Imagine that in the reformed world. Um, <laughs> but, but what they do agree on is that in times of plague, general plague, uh, the need for repentance is clear. Mm. The, the, a, general, a general catastrophe is a general call to repentance. Mm. And I think that's something that I think has been missing in a lot of the conversations about plague and COVID and pandemic is the, the, 
we need to get bold and clear about the, the gospel of grace and hope, as well as the, the need to talk about repentance. Mm. And that's something these, these men were doing. Even as they disagreed about what was the nature of various people's callings, whether or not they should, um, how they should respond to the magistrate, how they should think about church assemblies, all these other questions are in the mix. But at, at basic, at the heart of it all, they said, we're going to agree God is sovereign and we need to repent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, before Nick asks that, it just it reminds me when, when you're saying <clears throat> of the Heidelberg it, question one an answer for question one starts making a whole lot more sense when you realize what they're in the midst of. What is your only comfort in life and death? Yeah, that's right. That's right. These doctrines are practical. Um, if you abstract them and and pull them out of their context and pull them out of the congregation, then they can they could become, I suppose, arid, dry, and rarefied. Mm. Um, but that's not how these functioned in that period. Yeah. Um, mm. Some of the writers in it. I mean, we've we've got a variety of folks in here that some people will recognize, perhaps. Or Sinek is one of them. Mm-hmm. Another um, one that's also very interesting. Um, Caesbertus Flitzius is uh, mm-hmm. was sometimes been called the John Owen of the Nadar Reformatie. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was a he's a major thinker, and his work is a very technical academic disputation, and it demonstrates he's not just reading from his own group. He's hmm. reading Italian medical tractates. He's reading Spanish Je- Dominicans. He's engaging with French Jesuits. He's reading Lutherans on. Um, on their ministerial practices. He's engaged with uh, English writers as well as Swiss writers. And what you begin to realize is that the, the level of scholarship these folks are bringing to bear is, is a global sort of approach. It's not just a localized affair. The question of plague is one that affects nations. And, and they're thinking through what does that mean for our churches and what does that mean for the spread of the gospel, not just locally. So I think that, that, I think, is another point, I think, that's very interesting to consider. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought a a book with the uh, word plague in the title would be comforting through some (laughs) guidance in it. Yeah, that's true. It's it's good. Uh, And comforting through some guidance of people that have already experienced something like this and worse in the past. And I guess you could say there's nothing new under the sun. That's happened, <laughs> That's right? True. Yeah. Putzius would, would say at the end of his treatise, he has this one tagline, um, and it's conquer your conquer the fear of uh, death and you will conquer plague. Hmm. Ooh, very nice. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you unpacked that background because uh, one of the things that was illuminating to me is that the plague was a common event in the Reformation and post-Reformation Europe and always a frightening occurrence in early modern Europe. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there was people that we know today, very uh, big theological giants during this time that firsthand experienced plagues. Um, I know you touched on it a little bit, but what with Bollinger and a few other people we were talking about pre-recording, could you Maybe explain what some of their firsthand experiences were with plagues. Stephen, why don't you talk a little bit about Zwingli? Yeah. Yeah, sure. The um, <clears throat> One of the pieces in there is Zwingli's uh, Plague Him. 
Hmm. He, uh, not long after he took uh, his position as the uh, pastor of the uh, the uh, church in Zurich, uh, he well, he was actually out of town <laughs> at a spa trying to uh, recover from a strenuous uh, early months of his, his his pastorate, and a plague broke out in Zurich. Uh, he he beelines back to. Uh, care for the people of the city in this uh, through, through this trial, the, in this plague, uh, his his brother would would die, Andreas, hmm. and uh, it's estimated that approximately a quarter of the city uh, likewise uh, perished. Holy moly! And uh, it's a phenomenal, staggering number of people dying from the plague. Zwingli himself contracts the plague and. Uh, comes very, very close to dying himself. And throughout that experience, or maybe towards the end of the experience, it's, it's a little uncertain when he, he penned the hymn. Uh, he pens this three stanza hymn that traces his experience of, you know, through the onset of the plague, the, the depths of his despair, and then his joy at, at recovery. Hmm. And biographers of Zwingli note that his life that this was a, a, a turning point in his life when he came to a, a much deeper, more profound understanding of one, God's sovereignty, uh, God's provision, and uh, God's, God's grace, but then also the, the importance of not placing your hope in this world or the things of this world. Hmm. He, he was, the final stanza is quite striking because he was keenly aware that he, you know, though he survived this plague at some point he's going to die and uh and i and i think that that's an important thing for for christians to remember you know mm. god god is very kind in sustaining us through all all manner of difficulties trials illnesses hardships and yet and yet one day our pilgrim journey will come to an end and where is our ultimate hope and to hear Zwingli, you know, singing of his confidence in the risen Christ, it's powerful and it's it's moving. Mm. You know, Luther likewise, uh, we uh, included probably the most uh, probably the most famous piece or familiar piece uh, in the book uh, uh, is uh, Luther's uh, letter to Johann Hess. Uh, you know, about a flight. You know, may we flee in times of plague. And uh, I had read this this before, but I, I was unaware of the the background to the letter when I'd read it previously. And digging into it a little more deeply for this volume, I was struck by the fact that Luther penned this as a plague was sweeping through Wittenberg. Hmm. Uh, he had um, between when he sort of got the letter from Hess and had be, begun a uh, response to when he finished it. Uh, there was a full outbreak of plague such that the, uni the university moved out of the city. The professors moved out of the city. Luther was told, get out of the city by the elector. And uh, Luther responded, as you might expect, uh, no. He's, he stays in the city and ministers to the, the people who are sick and dying of, of plague. And so it was out of that, as in this context that he's writing this letter, to, to Hess. And it's a, it's a wonderful letter, powerful letter in which 
you know, he's uh, calling Christians to whatever they do, whether they flee or stay. And he had parameters for who, who must stay, who hmm. may stay, who maybe must go. Hmm. And the, you know, the, 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 the driving, you know, engine in all of it is love, love of God and love of neighbor. And whatever you do, it must be motivated by love. And then he contrasts that with fear. You know, uh, uh, you know, what are you afraid of? He keeps asking, you know, <laughs> by implication as other readers, what are, you know, if Christ has indeed triumphed, what is a, what is a little spot of plague? Hmm. What, is, what kind of threat is that compared to death, compared to the devil? And a characteristic, you know, Luther here, he's telling Christians what to say to the devil. Hmm. You know, be sure, uh, you know, you can tell the devil when he comes and tempts you to fear death and to fear the plague you know you know you tell them you're going to go visit a plaguedism victim just to spite them hmm. um and so uh you know that combined with his you know wonderful encouragements to trust christ whatever you do reminders of god's sovereignty you know these are all these pieces and todd could should speak to some of the <laughs> other, con other contexts yeah but how, how these uh, emerged from the lived experiences of these these reformers. So, Todd, I don't know if you want to speak to the uh, the Zonki piece. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, Zonki was was close friends with the Bullingers, and um, Heinrich Bullinger was called to the bedside of a, um, of a I believe it was an elderly widow in his congregation, and she had the plague. Well, he went to do a pastoral visitation. He came home with the plague, brought it to his wife and mm -hmm. daughters, and um, Bullinger survived, but his family didn't. So when you realize that Zonki's in his Zonki was commenting on um, Epaphroditus in his Philippians commentary and takes a moment to pause and talk about plague um, and what it means to be, you know, Epaphroditus almost, he served almost to the point of death. And uh, Zonki takes a moment and uses that as a basis of talking about the nature of plague and how we should think about it. Um, but it's, Zonki has, a, has an important conversation about you know, Bullinger is a very important figure in, in the in the Swiss church. We don't put generals on the front line. Is there not some other way for uh, the comfort to be applied? Does it have to be a pastor? I mean, uh, he's asking that question and noting that the reform don't do last rites. Hmm. You know, so this, this is, in, in one sense, um, the conversation, you know, we talk about you need to be able to preach the gospel to yourself. That's one of the reasons why you need to be faithful in, 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 in the word, both in to hear it preached and, and to, in your own personal uh, growth, you need to be faithful in the word. Well, one basic application in the time of plague is what if you are by yourself hmm. when you are undergoing a disease like this? You need to be able to, 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 to remind yourself of those promises in the midst of, of this sort of situation. But Zonki is a very interesting figure because he's 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 thinking through how how do we handle the plague? Um, other environments like Beza in Geneva, he's actually thinking through questions of not only you know Beza had people in front of him who were saying, well, God's sovereign. I you know whether I live or die, I'm in the, it's in the hand of the Lord, so it doesn't matter how I conduct myself. Well, Beza goes, hang on a second, that's not the way that we think about God's sovereignty. We're not we're not rash. We need to be measured. 
whatever we do, we don't do it out of fear, but we also don't do it out of audacity either. Um, so we need to be intentional in the, you know, yes, we may die in, the, in our calling, but we need to be intentional and thoughtful and we don't need to do it rashly. So Bezos conversation is, a, is, a, is, if you will, to use the term in the 16th or 17th century, he's trying to aim for the golden mean. You know, on one hand, we don't want to, we don't want to flee at the, at the, at the drop of a leaf. And on the other, on the other side, we don't want to be reckless. We don't serve the church by being reckless. Hmm. So there's a there's an interesting point um, in this. Another aspect that's here is that these particular figures were also resourcing documents from the past. Hmm. Um, one of the most commonly cited church father in this period was Cyprian, who's uh, we include that in an appendix. Uh, it's an edited it's an edited and updated version of. Uh, of, on mortality, which was a sermon that you can find in Schaff, but also updated here. And, you know, you've got people like Andre Reve and Leiden and others throughout these writings that are saying, if I could put one sermon in the hands of a pastor in time of plague in every day, it would be this sermon of Cyprian's <laughs> mortality. Yeah. And so one of the things that's happening is these guys are, 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 are working through the early church fathers and other writers in times past to see how the word of God was used. Um, it was also interesting that they were trying, they were thinking through it ethically. The, the closest analog to can you flee in plague was can you flee in persecution? Hmm. So they're, they're bringing those into con those two themes in, into conversation um, and, and using that as part of their ethical discussion. Um, Another figure I've mentioned, Heisbertus Fitzius from Utrecht, he's worried that people are going to be put too much faith in medicine. Interesting. So yeah, that conversation is not new. <laughs> well, right, exactly, exactly. You know, and, and I think to put it as positively as possible, Fitzius wants people to be sure that they're putting all of their hope in, in God. Mm. It's not to say that we don't use medicine. Yeah. Well, of course you do. Um, we eat food, we drink water. Um, Reve has a Reve and Beza both use a, 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 the image of, you know, well, of course God uses means. I mean, yes, God is sovereign over the battle, but that doesn't mean we don't wear armor. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. so there's those kind of conversations, and they're bringing that into conversation about well, how do you think through play? Hmm. Yes, God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean you're reckless. Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. It's it's uh, it's interesting hearing because maybe we we kind of pull these guys out of context when we read some of their works. We read Calvin's Institutes, we read Bullinger, we read any any one of these guys or or Sinus on the Heidelberg or like whatever whatever it may be. Read these kind of kind of pulled out of their context. So how does how does I mean with, with this book with translate how how does it help you guys and how how do you think it'll help others reading this book kind of not in comparison to but reading this in context of their other theological works? I think it deepens it. Um, you know, there was a, there was a, a, one of the, one of the folks that was so kind to endorse the book observed, uh, I, I believe it was, was it Terry Johnson? Is that right? Dennis Johnson. Yeah. Dennis Johnson. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Dennis Johnson endorsed the book and made the comment, you know, um, and he, his comment is this, in times of economic uh, epidemic disease, how should pastors care courageously and tenderly 
for the fearful hearts of Christ's flock. I did not wrestle with that question as a seminary student, nor did I address it in the pastoral theology courses that I taught over the decades. Hmm. We now know how vital that issue is. In order to navigate these perilous and to us uncharted waters, we need not only the divine wisdom of God's word and spirit, but also the sage voices of our pastoral predecessors who tended Jesus' lambs in times of widespread deadly disease. Um, and so I think his, you know, Dennis Johnson's comment there is so, so vital and important. This is practical. Hmm. Um, it's practical for the training of pastors. Yeah. You know, um, we need to ponder the fact that plague changed ministerial vows in this period. Hmm. You know, it's not, just, it's not just, hey, we're creedal confessional Christians. By the time you get to the 17th century, there's vows in the French Reformed Church that say things like, and we won't flee in time of plague. Interesting. You know, so that you're orthodox. Yes, you have to be orthodox in your doctrine, but you have to commit yourself to orthodox practice. Mm. Yeah, I and think. I think that's an important element is that these are not these are not theoretical commitments. Mm. Yeah, the um, the challenge I think in, in reading this today is observing both uh, similarities and differences. Yeah, you know, we're not living in the 16th and 17th century, and so there's much about what they are. You know, their context that would be different, different from ours. Uh, Todd noted earlier, and something we were both struck by is how, as you look, especially as you look into the plague and the background of these uh, writings, the experiences of these authors, uh, COVID is not the plague. Hmm. You know, that's why we're, we're uh, <laughs> consistent in, in using the word plague for plague and pandemic for hmm you know, the uh, widespread of, of sickness and virus yeah. and so forth. So uh, it's not, and, and yet, you know, the, and so th that is a, a difference in experience, but a similarity is, uh, is fear. Hmm. The fear of death that was a temptation and experience of, of the Christians in Bayes' day, Futsius' day and Rawlitz' day, uh, that fear is the same experience that that we uh, struggle with, that our people will struggle with in our churches, in our pews. Um, and so when, you know, the, the quote earlier, conquer the fear of death, uh, wrote uh, Futsius, and you will conquer the fear of the plague. Well, it's not just the fear of the plague that grips the heart. It is the fear of, you know, whether it's death by COVID, death by cancer, death by uh, death of a loved one, we were tempted to be crippled by fear. And, uh, and yet the love of Christ casts out fear. And so the, 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 uh, though there's great differences that what we were struck by was also great similarities and uh, pastoral applicability of, of these writings to our current context today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Ursinus piece, for example, starts with the importance of funerals. Right. Hmm. Which, I mean, how do you know you're in a plague? Well, when the Reformed pastor ascends the pulpit and starts the conversation by saying, you know, reasoned, faithful thought about yourself and your family means you should be writing a will. Hmm. And in that will, you should include a testimony of who you are in Christ Jesus. Hmm. Yeah. So that so that your family will know. 
yeah. not only how to dispose of your property, but how to think of how to think of your life. Yeah. And and you know, I think that's one element of our of our experience that has not perhaps been on the horizon as much. We're not teaching people perhaps how to um, it, you know, yes, this is a this is a general this is a general ill. It affects everybody. Um, one, one beautiful point in that it affects everybody is you now have a basis of conversation with anyone you meet. Mm. How have you, how have you and yours handled mm. a pandemic? Yeah. How are your, how is your family doing emotionally, spiritually? You now have a point of contact with anyone you meet. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, true. It- I think that's a fascinating observation as far as, you know, when you think of a general ill, you now have the, you now have opportunity to put out a very specific hope. Hmm. Yeah. And the um, opportunity for Christians to respond uh, differently to the uh, dangers uh, that we face in this world. Uh, And these folks did. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's this um, discussion uh, by Reve about the uh, the what you call it, Todd, the burial practices. Uh, <laughs> he was horrified. Yeah, he was horrified that the uh, that dur- at times even during the sermon, uh, stones were being removed so that uh, bodies that had died of the plague could be buried under the church, and. Uh, and he's comparing this to even pagan practices, in which at least they knew enough to keep the uh, the, the the bodies that had died from plague outside mm-hmm. of, of the city. And um, but from there, he moves then into uh, considering wh- why people wanted to be buried in churches. What was it about it superstitiously? What was that? What were they trying to say about themselves in terms of their status within the community? And uh, how should Christians be thinking about uh, such realities? And, uh, you know, you'd think initially that this may have very little relevance to us today. I I don't think many of our churches are tempted to bury uh, dead bodies under the the floorboards. Um, But uh, looking at burial practices, looking at things like funerals, or as they're commonly called today, what celebrations of life, Mm. You know, how, how we respond to death speaks uh, about to of what we think about death and uh, the life to come. Yeah. And what's valuable, what's important in our lives in the here and now. And so, again, one of these these instances in which there's, you know, great discontinuity between our experience and yet uh, theological, practical realities that are are, are just as relevant for us today as they were in the uh, 16th and 17th century. Hmm. Another theologian that's in this book that we looked at was um, Johannes Hornbeck. He's actually the one. So what you get in this particular um, anthology, in part one, this is actually a 1655 collection of works that Johannes Hornbeck, a theologian at Utrecht with Flitzius, put together hmm. in, a time, in a time of his own play. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that's interesting here is that the second part of this work is because of the number of sources that all of these other passages, all of these 
all of part one we're citing. So the things that you're getting in part two are works that the reason we're going to these is because other folks were using them. I think we have one or one piece in there that is um, it's interesting because it was a pastor who came down with plague. It's during the time of the London plague, that great London plague in the 17th century. And he writes a letter to his mother um, thanking her for raising him as a Christian, that he considered himself more wealthy and rich because of that than as if he would have been born the son of a queen, an empress, or a lady. Um, so that he was reflecting on how God had blessed him and how thankful he was for his mother. So while he had the plague, he was writing a letter to comfort her that she would not grieve, disport, grieve without hope. Mm-hmm. Now, he survived the plague and he never sent the letter and they found it in his desk later. <laughs> but it's a fascinating piece because it shows you, here's the way, if you will, a common normal pa- pastor would have viewed this mm-hmm. in the period. Um, I think sometimes that's an important thing as a historian. It's not just the big names you want to look at. You also want to look at the, the theologians and the pastors and the lived experience of, quote, your average pastor. Mm. How were they applying these things and what were they thinking? Yeah. Sometimes, that's a, sometimes that's a clearer window mm. into what was actually done in a mm. certain period. So that's the letter from John Rollett to his mother. Um, no, our hope is not only is this, uh, we, this is not a cure-all. You're not going to read this book and have all the answers to COVID. But I think what I would say is, is that by reading something like this, it will give you um, tools to reflect on priorities and how, how, how people and congregations and leadership could think through some of these questions. Um, all of these men uh, that were, you're, you, you would read here agree on some basic points about God's sovereignty, but because of their varied situations whether and countries that they're in, they have different, they literally have different approaches on, on certain things. And, and to realize that within the Christian church, there, there is, there can, there can be common commitment and diversity of application. Mm-hmm. So there's a, you get that out of Reve. Reve makes that point. He says, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can't bring, I can't put forward an argument that's going to bridge all the divides, but I can say we should all agree that we need to be about the business of repentance. We all need to agree that God is, is our hope. And so that's, that's I think, a, a really helpful reminder um, for anyone going through something similar. Yeah. Sounds like the decision to either stay or flee during a pandemic, or I'm sorry, a plague, is more, I guess it could be in the context of pandemic too, um, is not a direct line biblical answer necessarily more of how you get to that decision might be based on where god is putting you in that time and place in your life at that time Um, yeah that's exactly right nick i mean the 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 conversation throughout all of this once you peel back the question of problem of evil the nature of god's sovereignty the usage of secondary means and all this sort of stuff behind all of that the pastoral council center centers on the question of vocation. Mm. What is your calling? 
and what's a, perhaps a different tone than today, the essential, the essential employees in a city in this period were magistrates and ministers. Yeah, yeah. You know, Very different, in, yeah. In, in the Great Plague in London, physicians fled. Hmm. And the people that were, that were <laughs> the people that were picking up the slack in, in the very in over 150 different um, pastoral charges around London were actually the ministers huh. and the, the congregants on the visitation of the sick and the care of the sick and these other things. And so the, the issue of calling is very important. Footsius takes the time to debate. Uh, there was a there had there was um, an argument made among some of the Roman Catholics, and it was a hot point among the Roman Catholics that someone uh, a, a priest put forward the idea that uh, because you had suffered under plague and maybe suffered valiantly, or you had been valiant in your service of plague victims, that should immediately be considered as martyrdom. And in that context, that means you're a candidate for sainthood. Yeah. So the, the Roman Catholic Church actually said, no, that's not the case. Martyrdom is for is on the basis of the faith, not on the basis of necessarily suffering outright. And so Futsius, as a Reformed theologian, is reflecting on that at points in his piece. Um, you know, yes, it's a good thing to, to, to lay down your life for your neighbor. But again, it's back to that question of calling. It's that back to that question of who are you responsible for? And it's not just yourself you have to consider. You also have to consider your family. You, if you're a nobleman, you need to consider not only your family, but also those who depend on you for employment. Hmm. So there's a word there, perhaps, to um, employers. Hmm. You know, it's not so simple as, oh, well, it's an at-will contract and you are, you're just an employee. You're not my responsibility. Uh, in this period, they're thinking through uh, those who have those who help people in, in terms of their uh, their livelihood, uh, that's part of their calling too. So um, that's an interesting reflection too. So I would say the question of vocation, Nick, hmm. is is really part of this conversation too. What is the nature of your calling in this life? Who do you serve? Um, who do you bless by your activities? And that's a helpful comment and point, I think, to reconsider today. Perhaps yeah. we don't think enough about that. Yeah, I mean, if it's when you're loving your neighbor, is it best to love your neighbor by going to a different place physically? Or is it best to love your neighbor by staying where you are and caring for them? And, you know, I, I don't know if I'm missing the mark on this, but I was thinking of Philippians 121 when Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, like all of us would know like to not fear death. Death is not the worst thing to happen to us because, you know, our, when we die, we'll, if we're saved, we're going to see Christ. But to live is actually um, here on earth, uh, maybe not as glorious. And maybe we, maybe if our calling is to care for the sick and our neighbor, that is to live is to Christ. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's spot on, Nick. Uh, the, the answer to should I stay or should I go, should I flee or should I remain is, is so complicated. And now not so complicated that you can't make a godly decision, but it's just, it's there, there's not a one size fits all. There's not a, there's not a calculus. Uh, 
you know, Beza would say effectively, it depends. It depends on so much. There, there, you might be called to go if you're old and infirm and you're not going to be much help and it would preserve your life and maybe you could help with lives of others and, you know, grandkids bringing them out of the city, then it could, it could be uh, more loving to flee than to stay. And yet, if your skill set is needed in the city, uh, it's more loving to, to, to stay. Uh, if you have people who are depending on you for their life, life and livelihood. It's, and so it gets back to that motivation, the, that heart motivation, as it's informed by scripture and considered in light of the, the, the particular circumstances of, of your life. And then, uh, and then you can stay or go, go boldly. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the things that I thought was interesting in this period, too, about the discussion, you know, when someone says ministers and magistrates are essential to the, to the running of a society and that's yeah. flag, one of the things that's brought up in that conversation is the fact that magistrates can work through intermediaries. Mm. Magistrates can assign somebody and it go, it's done, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you could task somebody to that committee. And so one of the one of the things that some of these pastors are pondering is how do you minister to the plague victims and what level of engagement and contact is needed by a, a minister? And um, with Beza, he actually raises the town and country difference. Um, he says, look, in a multi-staff environment, you know, he doesn't use the word multi-staff, <laughs> but in, in an environment where where there's more than one minister, one minister should be tasked to take care of the sick and others should be tasked to take care of the well. Or in, in using similar language of Augustine on persecution, um, it should be decided among the ministers who's going to stay and who's going to go. In a case where it's uh, you're a single pastor in a congregation or community, then the question is a little bit more nuanced. What are the functions that need to be performed and is it necessary that the pastor alone does it? Maybe there's other people in the congregation that need to be brought alongside. So what I appreciate in that conversation is, you know, the the nature of essential contact with plague victims is 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 a is a very thoughtful one about what is the nature of our ministry and how do we do it, hmm. um, and how do we do it well. Mm-hmm. And it, it looks even among the reformed in this period, it looks different depending on the size of your church, the size of your city, how many other churches are in your immediate environment. You know, if you can partner with other churches to accomplish the same task, they're thinking very creatively, but they're thinking of it as a body and they're looking at their individual context to make those decisions. Um, This kind of question came up before the French Reformed Church in one of its synods, and they asked, you know, the same question, can pastors flee in time of plague? Hmm. And the, the, the general synod did something that sounds very modern. They kicked it back down to the lower courts <laughs> and said, you guys need to figure it out on a case-by-case basis. Mm. In other words, this is something for the local elders and pastors to mm. figure out. We're not going to rule on that. So I, I think there's a, that's, I think, even helpful too. Even when we talk about what is the nature, you know, this person is essential in our society to perform these certain tasks. Then the question is also about how do we do that well? And I, that's, I think, where there was a lot of debate among the, these pastors and theologians, what is the best way mm-hmm. to follow? Mm-hmm. Once you've tacked down the principles, 
that doesn't necessarily solve all of the applications. But yeah. there were certain things, right, Todd, that, that, that were, you get a clear sense reading this volume that were non-negotiable. That's right. We need to figure out how to care for the, the, the question was never, do we care for mm. Christ's flock? Of course, we're going to care for Christ's That's flock. Right. Yeah. What, what does that mean? What, it, what should it look like? What's the best way to accomplish it? How might, might we think more creatively? You know, it, it, it didn't answer all the questions, but it, it is uh, moving to consider their commitment to their callings and what they would regard as non-negotiable. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly yeah. right. There, the, the non-negotiable aspects of the ministry of the word and how important that is, um, you know, that part, they're not going to give an inch on the ministry of the church has to be that has to go forward mm-hmm. that's that's what they would say the ministry of the church has to go forward but that part they're they're convinced about how well that that that's where it takes on the variegations of the different geopolitical context they're in yeah, yeah. social expectations uh cultural aspects um todd tell them what happened in geneva when they needed a another uh, pastor oh so you know i mean so the ministers in geneva were employed by the city right mm-hmm. they're yep. on the role of the city um and geneva started a went through several outbreaks of plague throughout the 16th century and one of the things that came out of that was a city plague hospital hmm. and they wanted a chaplain to go work in the plague hospital so if you are a city that has a payroll and you have ministers on that payroll, where would you go for to find a, a minister for your new or a chaplain for your plague, your plague hospital? You'd go straight to the ministers. Well, initially they did. They uh, they tasked uh, it was a young man. I think he was in his 20s, late 20s to be the, the, um, the chaplain in that environment. And after six weeks, he died mm. of a plague. So then the city comes back and says, all right, who's number two? <laughs> and at that <laughs> gotcha. point, and at that point, what the, a job posting. The, yeah. Our last yeah, one died. Right, exactly. you? Yeah. Right. You're a minister of the gospel. Here's a need go. Yeah. You know, so one of the things that happens in that context is the need is clear. The calling of, of the ministry is clear. What was not clear to the people sitting in front of it was who should go. Hmm. And so they did something that m- might make a little more sense now from, from looking from our day, if you ever hear about someone casting lots in mm. older Reformed churches and the old Presbyterian churches, this would be that context. Mm. Uh, so they, would, you know, the, the the city magistrate comes and says, "We need a minister for the plague hospital. Uh, who's going?" And they say, "Well, the need's clear, the ministry's clear, but what's not clear to us who should go?" Then they say, "All right, in the name of God, Amen. We're casting lots." Mm. And there you go. Mm. Yeah. We, we so, don't we don't typically recommend this as a as a model for church planting. Yeah, planting. yeah. After, after this episode, there. every church in in the Napart denomination is like, well, I guess we know what we're doing now. <laughs> That's right. The easy way. Well, to, it doesn't. Uh, I, was it was it Johnny Gibson the other day, Stephen, that was joking that said, "Yes, what do you do with loaded dice?" Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> um, but uh, but you see that they're they're what they're grappling with. Yeah. Yeah. Every one of these, every one of these ministers has perhaps family. Mm. Right. 
And some of the conversation is even like this. Okay, if this minister is going to go work, say, several weeks in a plague hospital, the city needs to provide accommodation for him so he's separate from his own children. Mm. Right. So you can see even in their day, they're thinking through a variety of problems and issues. You know, yes, yes, the minister should go. But should his family have to suffer? How do we how do we take care? What happens if the what happens if the minister dies in the service of the church? Who will take care of his orphan and, hmm. and, and widow? See, those, uh, those are part of the practice, pra- the, the practice of, of Christianity, too. Hmm. Yeah, that's I mean, I, I know our, our times times running, running short and we're, we're kind of. We're exploring this topic, but I mean, so my last question before, if, if Nick has anything else, if you guys want to end out with, with any other thoughts too, is, um, I mean, with, with, with names that I think some people may not know, um, and even in your own work doing this, who, who stuck out or what, what treatise or what letter, what's, what stuck out to you that you weren't expecting kind of on the front end. And you're like, Oh, that's, that's actually a lot more interesting, a lot more profound than I thought. And I had, I hadn't read this before. I hadn't read this person before it was, was there anything that kind of stuck out to you as you were translating, as you're reading these guys? Yeah, I mean, the uh, the piece by Ursinus was probably the most uh, striking for, for me, a godly meditation on death, hmm. an important r- reminder of the value of thinking about death and uh, a challenge as we uh, live in a culture in which it's uh, easy to distract ourselves in such a way yeah. that we we never have to contemplate death uh, and or rarely have to contemplate death. And uh, we are able to remove the uh, dying and the dead from our daily life. Mm. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I mm-hmm. think just one of the uh, consequences of that is that we're not confronted with it. And Ursinus begins his piece with uh, a discussion of funerals. And I think funerals, funeral processions were uh, just a a much more common, familiar phenomenon in uh, Ursinus' day than they they are in our day. And so uh, as what what I found helpful, challenging is as Christians, uh, the, the importance, the need, the value of considering our mortality and considering the reality of death and asking the question even daily, am I prepared to die? It's uh, probably can't ask yourself that, that too much because it's a question of asking uh, that, that, that implies who am I trusting? Am I trusting Christ today? Right. Uh, am I, am I clinging to the sufficiency of his work uh, wholly on, on my account? And uh, if so, uh, then I can have hope both in life and in death. Yeah. Yeah. To compliment um, the Orsinus piece, I think another one that would be basic to these, to, that would help you understand the rest of these pieces would be the, the Beza piece where he's thinking through, um, he's addressing people who say, well, God's sovereign. And I can, I'm basically just going to have a, have a rather um, bold approach to this without any much further thought. And Beza's, for someone who is, you know, predestination and providence and big thing for him, yeah, are very big are very big topics that he's thought a lot about. Um, 
but to hear him talk through how we need to be careful in the way we think through our means. Just, yes, God is sovereign. Um, and yes, he's sovereign over our life and our death. But that still means we have an obligation and a responsibility to think through the best way to spend that life mm-hmm. um, in his cause and in his service and for the good of the good of God's people. Um, so I think that's another helpful piece. Yes, we have that wonderful hope in Christ Jesus. And that answers the questions about our ultimate end. The question where these guys are spending a lot of time is on the proximate questions of love of God and love of neighbor here and now. Yeah. So Babe is very helpful, I think, in that regard. And our hope is, is that taking all these pieces as a whole, it will, it will both encourage folks um, and yet at the same time give points of reflection. Totally. Yeah. And further consideration. Nick, I don't know if you have anything else to add. Yeah, you guys pretty much nailed my question without <laughs> even knowing it. I was going to say whether it was the, the main purpose or not, will you always are hoping works like this drive people closer to Christ. And so it was more of, you know, more of that. And just, you know, in light of a reflection of what people have lived and experienced before their theological giants in the reformation to in during a plague that was much nastier than today's pandemic and how we should respond as a church and love our neighbors and, and uh, I don't know, any other closing remarks on, remarks on how this is reflective on the, you know, on, on our ultimate savior, Christ? I think it would, it would be set your hope fully on Christ. He is, is, your, is your all. And then live faithfully out of that. I think that's the I think that's the, the the basic point for all of these. Yeah. Um, and the other one in here, as you live, seek to live faithfully, and you encounter people who have different life situations, you have a responsibility to be a faithful witness, and you also have a responsibility to be as charitable as possible. Um, that's part of that love too. Yeah. 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 That's th- thanks, Todd. To that, I would add that. Um, our trials, whether it's illness, loss, uh, anything else, uh, can and will be used by God for good. And that good might be to loosen the, the hold that this world has on our hearts and make us long more uh, heartily, willingly <laughs> yeah. uh, for for the the world to come hmm. and to place our hope more firmly on on Christ our savior and and if that that happens as a result of our trials we don't call our trials good but we also don't resent them hmm. right we are able to thank god even for them not implying that they are themselves good but uh, that god is so sovereign and so powerful that he can use uh, such awful realities, such tragedy, uh, to bring glory to himself and good to his people. Yeah, that's that's good stuff, and it's I mean it's helpful reading through this, and we're, we're so used to them being big name um, technical theologians, and we, we and it's it's very easy to forget they're 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 like us um, living in their time in a time of plague, and that kind of flavors a lot of how they write. 
Um, and I think it gives us a deeper appreciation for why they write, how they write, the doctrines that they, not that they come up with, what they see in the scripture, and, and they really sure. speak to them in their time. And they say, oh, God's sovereignty is actually, that's a big deal, not just not just because, not, not that it's not important, but the Bible pronounces it, it's, it's a great doctrine, but also like, man, they were, they had plague after plague after plague after plague. And so God's sovereignty really does mean something mm-hmm. when you're- oh, we haven't even, we haven't even gotten into- famine and war i mean exactly, this is just, yeah. you know <laughs> there's so much stuff yeah it just it puts that's all volume, this in the that's context. volume two right todd <laughs> yeah right i mean one leads to the other right <laughs> exactly yeah you know? yeah but i mean i mean thank you guys so much for for translating these editing ed, editing these putting these together um introducing us to some of these people and their works but also i mean how, how they drive us and these trials drive us to, to further and infor- further conformity to Christ. So thank you so much for editing this, for writing these things. It's been, it's been a pleasure to have you guys on. Peter, thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Yep. Cool. Well, we will, we will have uh, if you guys, if you guys are listening, we will have Dr. Rester on again. So we're technically recording with him next week, but it won't come out for two months until the, until the volumes come out. So we're, we're excited for that. And I don't know if you guys, if there's anything that people can be looking forward to, if, if like, where can they find you? If they're like, oh, I want to, I want to find more of Dr. Coleman or more of Dr. Rester. You guys, so is social media thing for you guys, or is it just, we're, we're kind of our own little domiciles. Uh, yeah. You don't want to find any more Dr. Coleman. <laughs> it's fine. I, I've found the best approach for me in social media is to be peer reviewed. <laughs> gotcha. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah we can the, the westminster theological seminary website is uh an easy way to get yeah. to reach out to us to get in touch with us that would probably be the the most obvious place cool yeah well yeah again thank you guys so much and hopefully we can talk again soon absolutely thanks nick thanks peter Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast this specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further yep all for the kingdom of god thanks so much guys
We'll see you guys next time.